Hello, welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. If you don't laugh, you'll cry. That's probably the tagline for this podcast. We'll just get that out there nice and early. So, uh, Connor, how are you? Had any nice meals recently? Watched uh, watched any good films? Um, I, I had a Burger King for lunch. That was Ooh, good. That sounds good. Um, beyond that, no, I'm, I'm really struggling. I haven't done too much, to be fair, but nothing that can... Uh, can I, I tell you? I tell you something. I, I studied drama at A level, so I, I read my fair few Shakespeare tragedies, and uh, I'm not quite sure I've seen anything as tragic as, as <laughs> Norwich City's performances since uh, since lockdown. So there you go. You can you can have that one for. Uh, hold for off. I'm, I'm trying to hold off the football chat for as long as possible, mate. So hang on. We got we got some more to go. Yeah. I mean, I had a fry up this morning. That was pretty exciting. Met a couple of friends. Went to a went to a cafe. It was great. I had a, a black pudding bourbons. Which were pretty pretty good actually. Oh, yeah. no, I just like the chocolate ones. To be fair, yeah, chocolate bourbons for me. Uh, Pad, anything else to to offer? Just to put off the game for a little bit longer. Uh, I found myself watching on BBC on Friday night. I'm sure we can plug the BBC. Uh, the rerun of the London Olympic opening ceremony. That was very. Oh, yeah. in- I've got it on inspiring. Blu-ray. Yeah, if you, if you want to watch it again. Well, no, not <laughs> not so close. After what I literally sat and watched all three hours or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> And that's probably the first time since the actual, the actual 2020, 2012, sorry. That's not bad considering Ceremony. you've got a one-month-old child. Well, that's why I was watching it, basically, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that, uh, it just sort of kind of fell into his feeding cycle, so uh, he didn't really, he wasn't really watching it, but uh, <laughs> but it was. Uh, he was what? like, that Paul McCartney can't sing anymore. <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, no, it wasn't the way I'd have ended it. I'd have ended it with the Arctic Monkeys, I think, but... Uh, <laughs> It was uh, what an impre- what an impressive. I mean, even now you sort of watch that and you think just how awe inspiring. And uh, sadly, it did make me think about you know you felt quite proud to be British watching all of that. But obviously, without getting too deep into the political ructions that have erupted since. Um, but when that felt so united as a country and celebrating everything that was good about Britain, you know the NHS, which has obviously come back in recent times, sad times, and. Uh, all the inventions, the music that this country has given to the world, and uh, and now we find ourselves a bit like Norwich in a bit of a bit of a state. There you go, mate. Have that one. I'll throw something nice. else in. I got, I got this shirt fairly recently. Hold on, it doesn't I'm work too up. well on a pod, mate. No, it doesn't. It's, uh, <laughs> Describe it's, it for us. It's probably not great if I say it's blue and white. It's a bit. It's, uh, it's blue and white stripes. I, I probably need a top hat with it to be fair, like a straw top hat, I think. Mm. But uh, there you go. No, I just I was going to correct Southwell for uh, there's me going very deep with uh, you know how our country has changed not for the better, and he comes back with I'm wearing a blue and white shirt. <laughs> you have got to throw fashion out there, haven't you? Okay, fair enough. Well, <laughs> dear listener, I'm afraid that's that's what's going on in our lives. What's going on with you? Oh no, that's not going to work either, is it? <laughs> no, we are going to have to talk about the football. Um, we're trying to put a bit of a different spin on it this week because obviously. The last two pods have been pretty down in the dumps. To take the uh, Arctic Monkeys mention on, we've all been Mardi bums. Because (laughs) it's been absolutely horrendous, isn't it? There's not... I don't think even Daniel Farker or Stuart Webber would fight against that. It's just been horrible. They want it all to be over, but we just can't move on yet, can we? We will talk... I mean, you boys went down and spoke to Stuart Webber at the start of this week, so we'll... We'll dissect that interview quite a bit because that's probably more important than what we saw today. But as you say, Connor, it was almost a Shakespearean tragedy. Two red cards, a horrible own goal. In terms of a of a football match, um, if if this had all played out as it has done on the pitch, and fans were in the stands today, it it would have been pitchforks and torches outside Carrow Road, I think. Yeah, well, I, I sort of envy the supporters today because at least they had the chance to turn it off. You know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of that, and, and probably so the same over the the recent weeks as well. But no, it's it, it's not good. It's it's kind of a, a nice metaphor for their season, really. They they were well in the game. They shot themselves in the foot. They conceded two goals, one of which was a calamitous own goal, and, and they lose to the football match. It's it's kind of you can kind of copy and paste that I think with a lot of games this season um, and I know we'll get on to what Stuart Webber said but for all this talk about going into war without a gun or whatever they, they seem to have a, a spectacular way of finding one to shoot themselves in the foot continuously it's it's pretty <laughs> terrible isn't it so it's it's, it's uh, yeah it's not good it is um I think probably comical in a weird sort of way. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of how how do they keep out doing themselves? That's it. And 
you know, it's, it's Manchester City next week, so I, I, I don't want to say that they can't go any further because obviously that Premier League record is uh, is looming under, over their heads, and that's something that I, I think would uh, would probably top it all off if they no, went out like that. I yeah, can't exactly, exactly. So uh, it's it's not it's not quite over yet, and it kind of feels like we're all limping towards it being over, and it's it's going to be, I think, relief when it when it finally concludes because it's been um, it's been a pretty horrid month, hasn't it? How grim must it have been to be in that dressing room, Pat? I mean, even even the dressing room isn't as normal, I don't think, at the moment, is it? I think that's sort of, because they're, they're having to spread out for social distancing purposes. But I, I suppose, you know, they conceded two goals. One of them was a, an own goal with nine men, um, if you want to try and sort of look at it in any kind of positive way. But, yeah. And, uh, you, you know, in terms of the performance then, they weren't, they weren't horrendous today, were they? That You know... It, it has gone very badly, but the actual performance on the pitch, they were they weren't totally terrible, were they? No, no, no. I mean, if you stack up Southampton onwards since football resumed, I, I, I wouldn't put that near. The, well, I wouldn't put it at the bottom, that's for sure. But um, yeah, as Connor says, I mean, what, what a, a farce! The red cards mainly is the, what I'm taking away and what I'm focusing on. That, and I felt it in real time. And then Farker has obviously subsequently sort of more or less backed it up. That they were so naive and, and Burnley have basically done a number on them and that includes Sean Dyche in that because from minute one he was in the officials ear all through that first 30 minutes every not even a contentious call but he seemed to think that Burnley had been wronged and it was constant jabbering to the fourth official constant jabbering to the ref and none from Norwich no and then and then as Farker then said in his post-match just before the Buendia incident there was one where Tarkovsky has literally just shoved Max Aarons and you think is there any need for that but it in terms of getting under their skin collectively, and Daniel felt that was a response to Norwich starting the brighter of the two teams and probably should have been ahead. Um, but a very grizzled casting image of their manager's Premier League streetwise team have basically taken Norwich to back to school and um, entirely of their own making, really. And, and that theme, for me, is where we are now, is that Norwich, as the table final table will show... Um, they're so far adrift of the other 19 teams, it is quite embarrassing. And um, there's many things that are wrong with that group of players, but they are increasingly not only the quality, but they're also out of their depth in terms of the, the game management elements of it as well. And graphically illustrated again for me today. Too nice, then. I mean, if Daniel's saying his players have been naive, then perhaps he needs to fall into that category as well. If Sean Dyche is managing to have some kind of influence on the officials, then. Him and his coaches need to be doing it as well, don't they? They do it occasionally, but it perhaps it just sort of sums Norwich City up too nice. You know, all, all the talk of the success under Lambert and McNally was that it was great to have some nasty dickheads, basically, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, you had Grant Holt literally just bashing people out of the way and leading from the front. And for the first time in ages, Norwich fans are like, this is brilliant. We're not getting bullied by people. We've, we're, we're bad boys as well, or we can be at very least. Mm. You know, they, they were pro- there's some hard-nosed footballers in that team. And, you know, there obviously isn't that in this because there's a lot of naive and naivety and inexperience. But... Let's go through the penalties quickly then. I mean, the first one from our angle, it just looked like such a sort of nothing handbags event. And I have seen the the other angle eventually that we couldn't see live, where you can see there's a bit of sort of elbow-to-head action. But Westwood is standing up, Emmy's sort of bringing his arms down, and then, yeah, yeah, it's difficult to say whether there was much intent there, but it clearly wasn't a very clever thing to be to be doing but in real time it just didn't feel like a red card incident at all and then once it goes to VAR we, we were just saying before we started recording weren't we that if there wasn't VAR I don't think that would have been a red card I don't think the referees or the linesmen or anything are coming back to that and then when they watch it all in slow motion yeah it does maybe look like an elbow but it, it's like analysts who sit on match of the day and watch everything in super slow motion and say, oh, you know, oh, the keeper should have saved that, but then completely forget the fact that the ball's flying at however fast mile an hour. It just, it, it didn't feel like a red card to me in real time, certainly. No, I mean, you you two might be better placed on this than me, but I think if, if that's an incident that happens down the Prince of Wales Road on a, on a Friday night, I'm not sure he goes down clutching his face in, in that fashion, to be honest. <laughs> not a chance. No, exactly. So I, I think when you, you can take things out of context and you can look at them in six different angles and it's super slowed down and eventually you'll find something wrong. I think that's that's the nature of it. But 
to place it under the microscope and and to sort of comb through it in in that fashion i think you you go you're going to find an issue and for me the the fault is more that they don't take it all the way back and look when when they're sort of clashing legs because i think there's there's probably a case that westwood and certainly buendia kicked out each other so for me buendia is silly puts his arm in a silly place he gives gives them a decision to make essentially but how westwood has walked away without caution or, or without a card is, is beyond me really because as you said it, it was a coming together um, it was on the floor they both got up uh, well one of them got up um, and, and then it, the game resumed and, and it wasn't much made about it it was only when Sean Dyche um, decided to take issue with it and his coaching staff and then, he, and then the players once the ball and, and the referee had stopped play that's when suddenly things started to, to feel a bit heated so I think it's it's easy to overanalyze these things, and and that's the thing with VAR. If you're watching that on on TV today, I'm sure it's a great spectacle, but in the stadium, it just and I know it was empty today anyway, but it just leaves a void. And I I think that's probably if we are looking for positives, and there's very few of them. The, the fact that it won't be there in the championship for me is is going to be such a relief. It's going to be nice when the ball hits the back of the net to actually for fans to actually have that moment where they can celebrate, and they're they're not sort of waiting for two minutes, and then the celebrations and the emotion have have gone from it. So. It's it's a really really difficult one because I I think if you if you're looking for 100 percent accuracy you you would probably boil it down and say Buendia's given them a decision to make and um, Daniel Farker said that they fell into the trap set and I, I think that's probably quite a, a good way of putting it to be fair and but for me yeah as I said at the top if if that happens on the street it, it doesn't end with with someone getting arrested for assault so that's that's my issue with it I think. Me and my mates had more violent fights than that when we were about ten years old. That you know, for that to be a red card, that it just seems to lack common sense completely. That was just a yellow card for both, and say pack it in. You're being a pair of prats, basically. Like there was there was no aggression. It wasn't malicious. It wasn't. He barely hit him. I he just... kept his arm there, didn't he? He kept his arm, and that's the problem. He doesn't. He doesn't sort of go to relax his arm. He keeps it in in a fairly sort of firm position with his elbow pointed out and I think as soon as there's contact made it, I mean he's just standing up so whether it's intentional or not only Buendia will know but it's it's so soft it's untrue and what um, must rugby players think when they see something like that they must just yeah. be they must just be laughing so hard at how pathetic that is like that two players can that a player can be sent off for something like that but Buendia is obviously not without blame here because he ultimately has done something however small and however little the impact has given the referee an opportunity to to make that call and I guess that's what it comes down to and we were just talking as well weren't we? we think that that's probably going to mean a three game ban as well isn't it because that'll go down as violent conduct well I mean you would have to think it will be a three game ban and if it is then if, I mean you Immediately, my thoughts as he walked off was, "Is that the last time we see him in an orange mm, shirt?" Because yeah. you know, clearly, there's a lot of noise around his potential future now. The team are getting relegated. Um, if it is, it's a sad way to end. But uh, yeah, I think that probably will be three. And whether Norwich look to appeal, but then did, I think they did away with the frivolous extra game, didn't they? So I don't think they will appeal it. I think they would basically let it run. But you talk of laughter. That was the reaction in the press box where yeah, we were yeah. sat. The minute VAR confirmed that and he's gone to his pocket and pulled out a red, there was laughter from journalists. Not, not then, and by no means is it all pro Norwich or, or Norwich local media. That was all shades of media in that room, and collectively there was just laughing because it was such a. I mean, if I'm Ashley Westwood, I'm frankly embarrassed. Yeah, to, to get a fellow professional sent off like that, I understand that you're trying to gain an advantage. Um, and it's high stakes they're playing for at the top end of the game but there should also still be some mutual respect we hear a lot about respect where's the respect he's shown to a fellow professional there um, yeah disgraceful really that that he would go I mean you watch it back again there's almost a delay from the moment that the elbow however hard comes down on his back to when he collapses um, you know the Grealish thing again we saw it the other day didn't we it's um it's not a very palatable side of the game, really, when you see that. And, and as you rightly say, you know, what do other sports and other sportsmen think of that? Because uh, it's quite embarrassing, really. It is. Sorry, and reflection on football as a whole. But that's nine league defeats um, in succession. Nineteen conceded, and one scored. I mean, 
you just can't paint put any kind of sugar coating on that. Um, we don't really need to talk about the Dermage one. That was just stupid. Rush blood to the head, or maybe even a bit of a miscalculation. It's just a poor tackle. Studs up. Absolutely no debate over that one. And then right on the back of it, you know, it, literally the wound was open and a tub of salt being poured in at this point, wasn't it? When Chris Wood shins an overhead kick, squirms past Tim Krull. I mean, honestly, it, it in the moment, the whole ground, like when Buendia went off, he was just sort of almost laughing, like dismissively, wasn't he? Like, are you are you serious? And then he hung around in the tunnel for a little while to see whether it was actually going to happen. They even did a VAR check on the D- Dermage one, didn't they? Because I suppose they have to check red cards, but it's like, well, don't bother, boys, just get on with it. And... Um, yeah, as that as that one goes in, you can just see the Norwich players look like they've been hit by a train. It's just one thing after another, isn't it? There's there's no way of uh, really putting it. It's it's kind of again, as I said, you kind of think, well, how do they outdo themselves? Because they seem to manage to every time, and I'm sure we'll come to the own goal. But that's <laughs> that's another part as well where uh, you you almost feel sorry for them because of the way it's it's going and the way it's gone this season. And you know, there's there's so much theatre available. I, I don't think that if if you took Norwich's season as it's panned out with all of the events that have happened and, and you took it to, to a playwright I think they'd probably turn you away to be honest it's it's that sort of unbelievable at times particularly today I think it was just a, a capitulation really in, in what 15 minutes from, from Buendia's red card to Chris Wood's goal so it's it's almost laughable um, yet quite predictable at the same time and it's it's just kind of got to a stage where it's almost like what are they going to do this week rather than if, if anything's going to happen and um, yeah, they're, they're the victims of their own downfall, and and I think it's it's sad really when when you think about how much success a lot of those team or a lot of those players brought to to this club last season, and how much of a wave everyone was riding to to perhaps where they are now, and it kind of feels like it's going to be very difficult, particularly with the short break between seasons, to pick themselves up and and, and go again for a championship campaign against a lot of teams who are going to be physical and realistically you're going to have to have a lot of turnover and a lot of sort of fresh blood not to carry over some sort of hangover and if they haven't done that quickly enough then it's it's going to be incredibly difficult I think to, to turn the page and let this go because they haven't got a, a sustained period of time to dwell on it or reflect and go to a nice beach somewhere and, and, and reflect on it that's that's not going to be the case so it's it's going to be an incredibly interesting sort of I guess dynamic to see how they respond to this and how many, how much of that squad is is going to be there next season, and and if they are, how much of of this sort of carries over and acts as a hangover? So there are a lot of questions going forward, I think, and and you know we've we've addressed them on on the last two podcasts really, but it's um it's just it's reached that point now, I think, for everyone where you just want it to be over, and and sadly, it's it's almost like you've got to watch another horror film, sadly, mm-hmm. um, next weekend, but um. I, I keep trying to tell myself it can't be any worse, surely, but they, they seem to manage that. Yeah, but you guys don't have to watch it, of course. Let, <laughs> drop us a tweet on the Pinkin if you are still watching the games in full, or if you, you know, if you just turned it off at half time, thought I can't bother with this, I'm going to go do the washing up or something, you know, I, because this isn't really football now, is it? This isn't the Norwich City that fans know and love. This isn't the football that they know and love, and you know, I, if if I wasn't working next Sunday at the Etihad, I. I don't think I'd be watching it, to be perfectly honest. I think I'd just check what the score was later on. But, yeah, let us know on, on the pinkin. Um, this was a horrible fact from Opta Joe on Twitter. Uh, it's only the third time in top-flight history that a team have gone five con- consecutive home games with losing without scoring. And the last two times it happened was Sheffield Wednesday and Birmingham in the 1920s. I mean, that's horrific. Um, there's plenty more. They only scored 19 home goals this season because, of course, that's it for home matches at Carrow Road. Um, unfortunately, it might not be um, for behind closed doors at Carrow Road. Um, we'll come on to that. Uh, they did score 17 in 2014 when they went down, so they did better that season. But that that was the club's worst ever season at home. And they still could uh, set a Premier League record. If they don't score at Manchester City next weekend they will have uh, only scored seven away from home and that will be a Premier League record low, even worse than that terrible Derby team in 2008, I think it was, got. So th- there's loads more you can chuckle at the situation, but frankly, what what's the point? Um, one slight uplift pad from Christoph Zimmerman. Uh, 
back. He came on at half time. Did Farker explain why he replaced closer? Was there any kind of injury issue there? And, and how did you think Zimbo did? There was uh, to closer. I think I'm doing this off the top of my head now. Hamstring, it was, was, wasn't it? it? Yeah. So um, because he said Christoph was not ready to do 45, which is what he said to us on Friday. Um, and again, you know, you're looking for common themes. Well, why not have another twist to the central defensive injuries? that they beset them from before even a ball was kicked at Liverpool and another hamstring as well yeah but although not in the context of where closer had to come from and then the congested nature of the games it, it's entirely predictable I think for me that he's broken down with a muscular problem um, and he also actually Daniel said that Alex Tete was complaining of some pain in mm. his knee as well so. he was limping towards his media at the end wasn't he we'll see where they where they rock up for, for, for Man City uh, eight days hence but I I would think going back to, I think Zimmerman probably will start alongside Godfrey, uh, the championship title winning union, uh, really. And uh, I wrote about it, sorry, after the game. That, you know, if you want a sliver of hope, then, you know, there will be a lot of flux. There will be a lot of turnover to the squad. Everything we're hearing, and we'll probably get into the, the Stuart Webber uh, content we did earlier in the week, would lead you to think there will be quite a churn but I think there will need to be constants and we hope or I would hope that Christoph Zimmerman is one of those and he is fit and available because you see him physically you know as much as anything he's such a, a presence and he's a leader um, a quiet understated leader but he commands respect amongst those Norwich players you can just tell and uh, you're going to need some very very solid citizens to do anything in that league next season um, and and he is one of the ones I think Daniel would be looking to build a team around. And, uh, yeah, I don't think, and I put this to Daniel on Friday, I don't think it would have been quite as far adrift if you'd had Zimmerman fit all through the Premier League season. Um, I just think over the over the piece, they would have been far more solid and there would have been a bit more reliability about Norwich as a defensive unit. Um, but those were the cards that were dealt. Um, and, and it's obviously panned out in a different fashion, but... Yeah, I think he. I think you. You may be taken for granted a little bit because he has this backstory that he came with Farker and he was almost on the cusp of knocking football on the head because he didn't feel he was going to make a pro career and he was potentially going to go and be a teacher. And you maybe maybe he's a little bit underappreciated, but I, I think it's pretty clear to me. And Daniel said this on Friday as well that over the probably the period of Daniel's tenure at Norwich, he's been their most consistent defender. Um, and they do miss him when he's not there. Um, and okay, you know he has the odd mistake in him, but there's plenty of Norwich players who have that. And uh, I think really they're a better defensive unit with him in it. So yeah, good to see him back. But you know I think it's all about next season really for him. He's Farker's man, isn't he? Like he was, he's the uh, like Beckham was to Sven or Keane was to Fergie. He is Farker's man on the pitch, isn't he? He knows how Farker thinks. He knows what Farker wants, and he knows what to tell the other players. And yeah. what I like with him as a centre-back is that he is one where it looks like it hurts him personally if he loses a battle, if he loses a duel. If a player gets the better of him for scoring a goal, it looks like it hurts him. And that's what you want from your centre-backs. Um, to be fair to Ben Godfrey, I mean, a horrible moment for him. It really was a horrible own goal, like they usually are. But the look on his face, he looked like that had really, really hurt him. But I think he actually played reasonably well, actually, again today, didn't he? And he was... He was pretty decent at Chelsea on the whole as well and on, on, on Tuesday night. So, yeah, I felt for him. Yeah, likewise, I, I thought he, he, he did a good job, actually, of, um, of handling Chris Wood and, and his physical edge. Um, maybe the, the cynic in me would, would say perhaps that he's uh, it's probably no coincidence that he's playing quite well considering we've got a transfer window coming up. But I, I, think, I think he is... There's, there's a lot of raw material there I think with, with Ben Godfrey there's a lot of potential to grow into I think that's that's evident and um, I, I think what sort of sets him apart perhaps from, from other centre-backs his age will, will probably be his pace ultimately because there are periods in in games or perhaps in, in passages where his positioning's not quite right but he has the pace to get himself out of that which is a tool that I mean you spoke about Christoph Zimmerman for example there he doesn't have that Grant Handley to, to, to an extent doesn't have that Tim Closer certainly doesn't have that so the way he can almost get himself out of trouble is is pretty good but yeah I, I thought the own goal was harsh actually because it's it, he had a really good performance probably the best I've, I've seen him play obviously he wasn't at Chelsea um, for for quite a while actually um, as as a defender and for me now I think there, there's so obviously the debate around whether he's a, a defensive midfielder or, or a centre-back and he may well go on to be a, a very competent defensive midfielder but 
for me at the moment, I, I just see someone who could be a very, very good centre-back if they're coached right, if they go to a club that's going to aid their development. And um, if he does all of those things, um, and who knows, again, it, it could be another season at Norwich, which I don't think would be particularly harmful for him, um, really. But no. oh, the, he's definitely capable of playing in the championship. Exactly, yeah, and and it, and and that's it. If if he does play in the championship, then then Norwich will be blessed with one of the best centre back options in in the division. That's there's there's no doubt about that for me. Um, but I I think he's probably got enough of the attributes and and his physicality as well that someone I think will probably um, take a risk on him a little bit because I think if they can get it right with with a, with a decent coach and a decent amount of playing time, I think that he'll he'll be a very very good central defender um, for for a team certainly at, at Premier League level if, if not beyond that so um, but like I say he's got so much work to do and, and performances like today um, minus the own goal obviously he needs to come more consistent and once he gets that I think we'll we'll see a, a very very good defender well, Unless there's anything that you boys want to mention from the game I think we can, we can park the game there can't we? Um, thank goodness Thank goodness um, Only the small matter of Manchester City to come on Sunday Right, let's look back on that interview with Stuart Webber then, Pad. Um, good opportunity, good to see him front up. I think um, all the fans appreciated hearing from him um, prior to the the mess that was Saturday evening against Burnley. Uh, it felt like it had bookended things a little bit in terms of starting to uh, put a close on this season and, and start to turn the tensions forward and, and, and the directions they want to be going. Um, but one thing that I think has been spoken about quite a bit is you know him saying, "Blame me. I don't care. You can blame me all you want. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to uh, listen to it. If you want your full guy, I'm right here. I've got broad enough shoulders for it. Um, I don't care." But I don't think he is purely to blame for this, is he? And I don't think many people think he is. I, I you know, he obviously is partly responsible, and the transfer uh, work hasn't been up to scratch but he'd already admitted that earlier in the year hadn't he but I don't think it's fair to put all of this on, on Weber at all and I don't get that vibe from most fans no 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 and and, and he would know that as well because ultimately um, I mean it's the book stops with him um, phrase isn't it ultimately which is the case but you know you just go back to today if we if we can briefly I mean that's not down to Stuart Weber that they, they, they they make stupid decisions uh, on and off the pitch and uh, they're naive and inexperienced and, um, and continue to make the same types of errors as well. Um, no, I mean, ultimately, I think most Norwich fans would understand where he's coming from, but clearly Norwich are not bottom of the table simply because of what Stuart Webber hasn't done. It's because of that group of players and Daniel and his coaches. So there will be collective cabinet responsibility, uh, to use that phrase, but ultimately... Weber's mindset was well I've appointed all these I've appointed Daniel you know I've appointed or I've sanctioned contracts for the guys who are already here or we've brought in players on my watch and so ultimately if it hasn't worked then the the, the dots lead back to him but yeah no it, I think that's more a tactic because he wants to protect Daniel a little bit because obviously after the after the Brighton game or sorry the West Ham game when it was confirmed you know, immediately Daniel's having to deflect questions about his future, and um, you know, is he the right man to lead them back? And, and you, you know, you failed. So, given also in that interview that Stuart said, as long as he's there, Daniel will, will be there, unless Daniel decides he doesn't want to be here. Then I think it's very much right. He's my man, and I want to take some of the heat off him and let him just go and focus now on the job in hand, which is trying to repair a lot of damage, sadly. Um, and to that end, he's obviously trying to uh, equip him with a bit more in terms of recruitment than they did in the two windows that, you know, wrapped around the Premier League because I think that's where Stewart is ultimately culpable if you want to break down this sec uh, this season and dissect it is that he was responsible for getting Daniel good enough players to supplement what they already had given that they were clearly going to go down this route of rewarding the guys who'd got them up and give them a chance and obviously part of that is, is the financial methods that they had to adopt and, and the projects and, and the self-sustainability that they're trying to achieve at this club but on top of that they also needed aid and clearly palpably even Stuart Webber was quick to admit back in January when he spoke to us that 
he didn't do his job right. So I think if you want to directly blame him, it has to be for the re- recruitment or the lack of good recruitment this uh, this season. But you know, ultimately, those records you cited are down to Farker and his players, and uh, and they haven't been anywhere near good enough. And and ultimately. I think Norwich fans will see that as much as Stuart clearly wants to protect Daniel to a degree and, and those players, but you know we're not daft. We can see we can see again graphically against Burnley that you know that ultimately comes down to those on the pitch, not the ones in the stand. Yeah, he's trying to show leadership, isn't he? Which is um, commendable at, at the very least. And you know, he talked about Eddie Jones' his autobiography, didn't he? And he talked about this book, the the Man in the Glass, and yeah. you know, essentially, you know, saying that you you've got to look at yourself at the end of the day, haven't you? And he, you know, he, it's clear he takes that leadership element of it all very, very seriously. Um, I should probably say at this point that you can hear that the full interview with Stuart um, both in the podcast feed. Um, you can go to pinkin.com slash podcast for that where you can also subscribe if you're not already to, uh, subscribed to the show or the Pinkin YouTube channel or it's been all across our websites I'm sure you can find it but Connie you sort of had the best seat in the house for this interview didn't you because you were on sort of video duties for it so you were, you were able to sort of take it all in and what, what did you make of it as sort of a of a performance which is kind of what it is when, you, when it's a sporting director or, or even managers to a certain extent with press conferences they're sort of football pantomimes in a lot of, way, aren't they? A lot of ways aren't they they're, they're putting on a performance for fans in, in some ways so what, what do you make of it yeah I, I think the one thing with Stuart Weber is he's, he's an excellent talker and I, I think he's quite reassuring as well because of how brutally honest he is at times and I, I think certainly the, the reaction from supporters I've seen has, has probably calmed things down a bit so I think if, if that was the objective then it's, then it's probably worked although um, today's performance certainly won't have helped but I, I think yeah the, the way he is you, you kind of get that what he's saying is, is genuine a lot of the time I, I don't think he'd, he'd feed us um, nonsense perhaps is, is the best way to put it um, and and yeah you're right I, I kind of felt that and this isn't necessarily a, a, an attack on him in, in terms of other interviews he's done I just think probably the, the topic didn't help but I, I haven't seen him with a desire like that in terms of how it came across. I think he's quite keen now to let his action do the talking and um, sort of change the narrative and show that Norwich have moved on a little bit. Um, and I, I think that will start, as, as Pat has alluded to, in terms of recruitment and, and how they start to sort of drip through some of these new additions. And it, it's all about sort of, I guess, controlling the narrative a little bit as well. I think there's there's an element of that. But I, I think with Stuart Webber, Norwich fans feel like they've, they've got a, a safe pair of hands and... I mean, to, to front up to any mistakes, I think, when you're in a leadership role, and again, not to broaden this out to politics, but there's probably a point to be made there about responsibility and taking it, I think is, is, is a brave thing to do in, in whatever walk of life, and, and there's a courage about that. And mm. the fact, I think, that, that Norwich fans have, have had relegations before and, and they perhaps haven't had their leaders front up or admit mistakes or um, say that they've got things wrong and, and perhaps shown a clarity in terms of the plan that that probably helps I think um, that Stuart Webber sort of is is different in that regard and yeah you're right there, there is a theatre to it and, and there is and he will know that as, as much as anyone a lot of it was about reassurance and um, ensuring that almost the because things I think after that West Ham game rightly the club had got relegated a lot of people were, were feeling emotive and angry and even though it's been in the works for weeks and months I, I, I think once it's confirmed for a lot of Norwich fans that, that pain you they, they do feel it so I think a lot of it was him almost firefighting to an extent and, and I kind of get the, the the scapegoat sort of image that, that he wanted to, to, to portray himself in and I think to an extent he was right to do that but absolutely were right that Daniel Farker I don't think can, can shirk away from his mistakes this season of, of which there have been a few the players as well individually and collectively so I think there are a lot of moving parts to it but I think more than anything else, he cuts a reassuring figure, and he and he gives people honesty, and he gives them hope, and um, I think that's that's what Norwich City fans need at the moment because I think you can watch the performances since the restart and probably feel a, a bit disillusioned for one, but but certainly a little bit lost in terms of perhaps the direction that they're trying to take it. And for all of this talk about mid to long term future, I think sometimes it's good to have that sort of mapped out and painted out in, in front of, of supporters and, and he certainly does that very well so um, there are a lot of things that again that I, I think supporters will have taken and, and will have liked from that um, but talk is cheap isn't it so it's it's all about the action and, and how Norris City respond and because he can say 
he can produce the best monologue in the world but if, if they go and lose their, their opening five games of the championship season then ultimately the the anger I think reaches a, a fever pitch to some extent so um, yeah it's, it's all about action now but of course you, you have to I think reassure and, and give a bit of confidence and, and front up as well and, and he certainly did that for me The haircut does suit the brutal delivery now though doesn't it, it I, does. I, I quite like it I think it suits him um, but it would have been a lot easier for Stuart Webber to tie this around Daniel Farker's neck, sack the head coach, sell five players, bank 80 million, start again. But that's not what he's doing, is it? He's trying to live up to a lot of the words that he said in the past in terms of that Daniel deserves a bit more patience than would normally be be allowed in conventional football circumstances here most clubs around the country he'd probably be gone by now wouldn't he but what happened the previous season although it's starting to feel like a very distant memory um, that was that was a pretty exceptional success so I I am pleased to see that he's trying to show loyalty whether it will turn out to be the right decision is a bit difficult to, to get a read on because we're about to go through a basically unprecedented period uh, of football well it is an unprecedented mm. period there's going to be a strange transfer window a small uh, short turnaround before the season resumes again as we sit here today with how dark the mood feels and how crap it's been in recent weeks it's difficult to envisage them being able to turn this around and bounce back with promotion straight away that, like that that just seems very difficult to to, to envisage but if it paid off, then Weber and Norwich City are going to be in a brilliant position, aren't they? Yeah, I think what I would add is, is and this is a point about Weber and Farker, I guess, to, to an extent, when, when you're so ideological and you've got such a clear idea on how you think the game should be played and, and how particularly Norwich City should be run, and almost this, this bubble of ideas is, is getting constantly sort of penetrated and, and it it's kind of how long does it take before that bubble bursts and, and they kind of fall inwards and I, I didn't get that sense I, I kind of got a sense that there was a desire to put it right and there was a desire to go and prove themselves again there was a hunger more than anything and you know it, it talks about sort of the profile of player he wants as, as being quite young quite hungry I get the sense that that hunger hasn't burnt out and I think there's there's probably been some question marks around certainly around Daniel Farker's hunger perhaps from from supporters I, I certainly don't see that from Stuart Weber, and I think the there's kind of a two rows to go down you either change the head coach or you change the squad I think um, because to just leave it going stale I, I don't think it's good for anyone it seems they're going for um, for adapting and, and changing the squad and I think that's right because the mentality of it as Alex Tate put so brilliantly after the West Ham defeat that has to change because to be a squad that goes from a losing mentality back into a winning mentality that's so tough to do um, because it's it becomes a habit and losing games is so quickly and we saw today as as soon as that first red card the heads were down and suddenly Burnley sort of went on a, on a on a wave of attack and and that changed the game and and eventually they they lost the game because of that 14 minute spell so that's that's the periods within games that they need to manage more and they need to have probably a better mentality and a better type of player to adapt to that and I think that that as well needs to be seen from the top, and um, I, I kind of sensed from from Stuart Webber that I think lockdown has, has probably helped him sort of reflect, um, probably professionally, and um, I, I think he's probably realised the mistakes that he's made, and now it's about rectifying them and, and whether he has the capability to do that. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore, for more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com/channel/archant. He is someone who definitely looks inwards, isn't he? And I think he often gets forgotten how young Stuart is as well. I think 37, I think he is, isn't he? About, he's, lo- he's looking uh, older the part of the day now, though, isn't he? <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, I think he's less it, than that, mate. I'm not mistaken. It, yeah, I think he's only two or three years older than me. So, yeah, um, yeah he, him and Daniel are learning harsh lessons, but they are learning them together as things stand. They are go- they're trying to remain the sort of two pillars which are holding Norwich City up, certainly on the football front. Anyway, obviously you've got Ben Kent or Zoe Ward that come into it in, in sort of a wider context but now it's all going to be be about transfers isn't it We're, that's what is going to be the vast majority of talk um you know as we said in previous podcasts we we expect there to be some transfer sort of movement reasonably quickly don't we but it's the outs as much as the ins and it's all a, it's all a little bit difficult to get a read on on who might still be around this by the time the season starts and or, or what the squad's going to look like well i mean in that Weber piece there was a there was a a pretty clear line that 
they feel that there's some on the journey who have basically served their purpose and they I think I think it was direct quote was something like we'll be moving them on rather quickly at the end of the season so I'm not sure players already under contract how quickly you can move them on if it's against their will but there is certainly a desire to as Connor said shake up that squad in quite a dramatic almost shock element to it I think and uh and as much as there's a lot of focus on inevitably those good young players and and who will come for them and will they still be able to stay in the Premier League I think it's outside of those four or five you know what's happening to the Steepermans Tom Tribal, Moritz Leitner those type of players Mario Vrancic are they deemed worthy of going again or you know could you could you see in, in a in a in a desire to maybe bloodlet a little bit to, to try and sort of renew it all again that quite a few of those lads on their way and uh, yeah I think um, I think certainly Dermich would would be uh, would be uh, for many Norwich fans they wouldn't be too upset if he got moved on but I don't get that sense because they still feel that there is a player in there so difficult times for those two Weber and Farker because they they have to stick true to what they believe in but they've been so buffeted over this season um in the transfer market, on the pitch, off the pitch, to have that self-belief um, unshaken, to go and stick true to what you want to do. And that's one thing, but then to be able to carry out, as they did so brilliantly, to put the building blocks in place to pull off that unexpected championship title win, can they do it again? And I guess what we'll find out now over these next few months is you know, whether that was a one-off or whether they do have that alchemist touch and they, and they can reproduce it, because there's no doubt if the first 10 games of the season do not go as Norwich fans would hope then I think I think that'll probably be the end of the road for Daniel and I think Stuart will have to pull the trigger and and he is a ruthless man uh, we've seen that and, and, I don't, and I don't think he will have any issue doing that but it would be on a personal human level very sad if it, if it does end in that way and um, and it will tarnish the legacy and, and, and then if they have to make a change early on then by definition, what you're basically saying is every bit of building blocks they've tried to put in place in the summer, whether it's recruitment in or recruitment out, isn't working, certainly under that manager. So it just injects even more uncertainty and, and probably makes it even less likely they can come back at the first attempt. So not to put too fine a point on it, I think the Farker-Weber era will be defined by what happens in his next, probably, certainly over the summer in the window and then probably the first 10 games of next season. I think that it is it, we are now in make-or-break territory. It will, and that's a horrible thought that that could happen to Daniel. That, but that obviously, football moves on. You know, he will leave Norwich City eventually. But I think, well, in one way or another, but Delia found it really difficult to sack Alex Neil, didn't she? She that that really quite hurt her because she'd taken him yeah. to her heart. And to be and fair, to be fair, that's probably why it limped on and limped on. And it was it was it the March April of that season. Because, yeah, it was March, and then Stuart arrived in April, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, because I'm I'm sure that, and I remember distinctly. In fact, it was Huddersfield who came to Car Road, wasn't it that season? And that was around about December. It might have been Jamal Lewis's first appearance or second appearance. Um, and even then, you know, there was plenty of fans would have happily seen Alex Neil depart, but they kept faith with him for another three or four months, and then ultimately, yeah, the decision was almost inevitable. So yeah, I think there will be a sense. Probably more so with Stuart. I think. I think. Um, I think Delia does clearly feel a huge amount of loyalty and gratitude for what Stuart has engineered. Mm. Called him a genius after promotion. Yeah, actually. quite right. Um, Daniel maybe less so because obviously it's Daniel is Stuart's man. So, but by the same token, you know he's the guy who, who delivered a championship title win in the most unexpected of fashion. So, I'm sure there is an attachment from Delia, but I think for her, it's basically Stuart is the kingmaker and. Um, but as Weber is very, very keen to always stress, you know, he, he probably won't need to be um, moved on. He will go if he doesn't think he's doing the job or he comes to the end of his contract. And as he's already stated, he, he won't be signing another one. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's Daniel of the two who's probably going to be more vulnerable uh, in his intervening sort of the next few months, I think. I, I do think she's taken Daniel to heart as well, though, in the same way that she did to Alex and... I think you're exactly right in that Stuart is the more important person in her head, but I think it would really hurt her to have to part ways on bad terms with another manager that she she really loves. 
and it's probably you know just worth emphasizing at this point you know obviously we we're talking about pretty serious matters here but the only thing that the three of us sat here want is for Daniel Farkas to turn it around and and for us all to be back on the promotion train next year because you know 2018-19 was a special year in our lives as well it was a privilege to to be able to cover it and you know we don't want to be morose like this in our podcast it's no it's no fun and you know fingers crossed once we get past what could be a pretty dark day on Sunday the uh, the wheel can start to turn and we you know football can show us again that things move on very quickly but as we sit here tonight it is um, it's difficult to feel too optimistic but um, thank you for listening Um, as we uh, said a couple of weeks ago rain or shine we'll still be there we will be at the Etihad uh, as far as we know we're, <laughs> we're, we're pretty confident that at least one of us will be at the Etihad aren't we but, might get a hamstring um, injury yeah <laughs> oh we've got a tight hammy yeah. <laughs> um, so you can follow it with us there and we will continue to uh, analyse and report on everything that happens between uh, then and the start of next season whenever that may be um, we should probably just close on on the crowds and the stands and and you guys listening, the fans, when you can get back to supporting your club properly, um, whether that is with a mask on or not, probably, probably may need to be for a little while. But we heard a bit of that, didn't we, this week, Connor, from from Boris Johnson from the government, in that it looks like maybe October could be the start of things. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully, because this um, there's there's not much enjoyment in in watching football in its current form particularly with with the results that Norwich City and performances that Norwich City have produced since uh, since we restarted and it it again there there are just points in games we feel if they just had some support here if they just had a, a little lift um that that could help them but i mean even to the sort of spectacle and and even to the game that that we all fell in love with it's it's just it's just not the same and um hopefully october um we we get a good portion probably unlikely that we get it a full Caro back but certainly a portion of supporters back in that stadium of course the debate will widen on to how the club sort that out but um, I think it's it's just crying out for, for that because the, the emotion that it lacks and the I guess the the, the detractors to, to not having supporters in the stadium far outweigh I think having them there and it's it's been clear to see and it, it probably um, everyone's taking it for granted a little bit maybe um, watching watching their football club and, and having fans in stadiums and what that offers football as, as a spectacle and um, it will be really good for everyone players staff um, us as well to to have supporters back in stadiums and um, yeah I, I certainly can't wait for the day and hopefully it's in the not so distant future where Carrow Road is, is back and, and full for the first time because regardless and, and we can talk about runs of form etc and managers and players coming and going whenever that is Carrow Road is, is going to be electric and that's going to be some occasion so um, I, I, I just can't wait for that to be honest No, never can I that first on the Bull City would be pretty special and, and part of me does wonder whether do we want stadiums with 30% of fans in and a few people rattling around trying to sing on the Ball City and make a bit of noise and it just it might even seem even more hollow perhaps because like you say without the emotion it just feels a bit cold and a bit dead and it doesn't it's not football as 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 we as we know it you know you just think that you know I'm 30 whatever 33 and all my life you know I've I've been to Carrow Road in some pretty dark times when it's you know when there was 14,000 people there and I think they lost 4-0 to Bradford in 97 or 98 and I always that was that's one that I always went back to as being well that was pretty bad it was a pretty terrible team and stuff in those moments though it's, it's cathartic isn't it when you've got everyone there as well it kind of feels like you've you've gone through that with other people together exactly yeah. so there's an element of um, I, I don't know you, you sort of get it out there I guess and at the moment people are watching it in their homes maybe with people who don't like football and, and it just sort of soars up within you yeah. I guess doesn't it so it's it's incredibly difficult yeah it's not the same and if you you know if it's say 30% in and people say you know they're not allowed to go down for a beer at half time the bars are all closed you've all got to stay in your seats you've still got to keep you know a couple of seats away from each other you've got to wear a mask so you can't uh, you can't roar on the ball city at the start of the game. That's still not proper football, is it? So, what do you think to that, Pad? Would, would you rather they just wait until it can come back properly, or do you, do you think that the the hunger would be there from fans that some people would just be desperate to get back under whatever circumstances it is? Just drop me water, mate. Just drop me water. Sums up the day. <laughs> Watch that hammy. No bottle. No bottle. Yeah, no bottle indeed. Um, 
Well, I mean, what we're, what we're enduring now, and obviously we are in the privileged position that we are allowed into these games, but it's rancid. It's just um, it's, it's, it's not even a shell of what football should be about. So, for me, from that starting point, any fans in would be an improvement. Um, but you're right, yeah, I mean, it would still be fairly sterile and, and huge logistical issues around it. I even think October's optimistic, if I'm honest. I mean, it seems to be more of a politically driven kind of soundbite rather than maybe what the science is saying. So, you know, I'm I'm not overly optimistic. Um, I think it might be a bit later than that. But whenever it is, yeah, I, I think there will be a renewed um, connection between their supporters and the football club, even in on the pitch at the minute, very difficult times that, you know, you, you forget what you've got until it's gone kind of vibe and, and in the sense of being there live physically part of it and, and you know feeling as one with you, with your team on the pitch and uh, to have that taken away you know it's it leaves a hole and uh, yeah I think I think if anything moving forward I think it, you know it, it might strengthen the ties that supporters have with their football club that, that you know it is part of them and part of their identity and what almost drives them on as well and you know it connects families and generations and uh what we've got at the minute isn't anything it's just uh it's just hollow and uh the sooner it's over the better absolutely right well i think that'll do for for this week's pod um thank you very much for listening uh, you can also hear us on future radio 107.8 fm and if you ever want to get in contact with us then uh, it's probably the pink and accounts on facebook instagram or twitter which are the best places to go for there if you're not already subscribed to the show then please do and any ratings or reviews are very much appreciated paddy connor thank you for your time thank you very much for listening we will bring you all the coverage from that Manchester City game next Sunday at pinkin.com but for now thank you very much we'll catch up with you very soon